Lord, we thank you uh, for the truth of these songs. We thank you that you are the living one, the one who death could not hold. We thank you that your face does shine like the sun, as we're going to see tonight in Revelation 1. God, we're grateful that these songs paint a vision of who you are. God, would you open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that we might too have a vision like John had, a vision of the Son of Man, to see you for who you are, to recognize what you've done for each one of us, for this world, for humanity. God, we thank you for the chance to be together tonight again. Open our hearts. God, open my mouth to speak your words as we go through the rest of chapter one in Revelation. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. That was awesome. I loved it. Love it. I know Aaron does this, but those are great Revelation songs. You'll see tonight that those are a great Revelation. uh, Great Revelation songs. So tonight, um, I'm excited to, tonight to, to preach, actually. I always am, pretty much. I mean, I probably say that every week. But uh, tonight, I, it's interesting. You know, I, I just kind of follow where the text leads when I'm going through a series. And, and I, you know, I'm just one of those people who believes it's all gospel, right? It's all, the whole Bible is worthwhile and worth studying. And um, it's my pleasure tonight to do something that, you know, going through Genesis, we can allude to, we can look at, but you're not always, you know, just right there focused on Jesus every passage. And it's a pleasure tonight because tonight we get to talk about Jesus and we just get to extol who he is. And what's important about tonight, I, I think one of the most important things is that we often are, um, I don't want to say hardened in a negative sense of like, uh, you know, we, we've hardened our hearts, but we, we get, we, we take it for granted who Jesus is and the magnitude of what that means for Jesus, who is a man to bear the weight of what God laid on his shoulders. Now we know he's God. In fact, this passage is going to make that perfectly clear. But for what Jesus did as a man and what he is like as a son of man, I mean, it's truly incredible. And we're going to see that tonight. We're going to see as we focus in squarely on who Jesus is, we're going to see what he's like. We're going to see what the resurrected Jesus looks like. He's no longer this lowly, just normal everyday man. But the vision that John has of him is spectacular. It's beyond comprehension. But of course, like the whole book, it is chock full of Old Testament references. So we're going to walk through those. There's a lot of references in it. But I promised you I'd start each week. Uh, If you don't know this book, it's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. John Fox wrote this book. Uh, I think he started it, it's 1500s. Let me see. Oh, it says right here, 1563. Okay. In the 1500s, he was writing this. 
It's been updated and added new stuff, but the whole point of this book, when John Fox wrote it, was to catalog the martyrs of the Christian faith. So it's kind of, you know, one horrific story after the next. Um, but this, this is the blood that watered the church to grow. These stories, these people, these lives. And like I said, it's only in the context of suffering that we can see Revelation as the book of comfort. So I want to open up tonight. This is the book I'm going to be using for these martyr stories as we get beyond the scriptures, which only have a few martyr stories, and we get really into the heart of the church, the church, church history, where many, many have died and are still dying today. We forget that here, are still dying today around the world for faith in Christ. So tonight we're going to read the story of Ignatius. Uh, Ignatius is interesting because he's a, he's a, a few decades younger probably, but lived during the lives of the apostles, right? So what we're about to read about uh, takes place in 110 AD. So not long after John has written the Revelation, maybe 20, 20, 30 years in there, after John wrote the Revelation, this is Ignatius as he's dying. So where we are here is, like I said, it's, it's AD 110. So it says, during this persecution in the year AD 110, Ignatius who was the overseer of the church in Antioch. He was the the bishop, right? He was the elder. The capital of Syria. Where's the capital of Syria? This is talking about this kind of Damascus area where they were first called Christians. Remember that in Acts? Where the disciples were first called Christians in Acts 11.26. Ignatius was sent to Rome because he professed and taught Christ. It's said that when he passed through Asia... Even though guarded by soldiers, he preached the word of God in every city they traveled through. And he encouraged and strengthened the churches. While in Smyrna, he wrote to the church at Rome and he appealed to them not to try to deliver him from martyrdom because they would deprive him of that which he most longed and hoped for. He wrote this. Now, I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ Jesus. Even when he was sentenced to be fed to lions and he could hear their roaring, he was filled with such desire to suffer for Christ that he said, I am the wheat of Christ. I am going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. Again, think about the power of that death as a witness to who Jesus is. Keep that story in your mind as we talk tonight about this vision John has. Because again, the book of Revelation is a book of comfort for those who are suffering. We've got to put ourselves in that mindset to see how this is comforting. Okay, here we go. 
Revelation. We're going to the end of uh, chapter one. So we'll start in verse nine. Last week we went through the prologue. Remember one, one to eight. This week we're going from cha- uh, verse nine, chapter one, verse nine, all the way to verse 20, which is the end of the chapter. This week I've entitled the one who walks among the churches. That's the heart of the vision. Who is this one? The one who walks among the churches. That's the vision John is going to have. So we'll start here in verse 9. Revelation 1, verse 9. I'm going to read these in sections. There are so many verses we have to go through from Old Old Testament that I'm going to read the chunk and we'll go back through it. Okay? Verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Okay, so John starts off. We just had the introduction. Remember, the last thing that was said is this grand statement of God, right? I am the Alpha and the Omega, right? I am the the Almighty, says the Lord God, right? That's the last thing. And now John's saying, here's how this happened. How did this happen? How did I get these visions? Well, I was on the island of Patmos. He says, first, let's go back actually. First, he says, I'm a fellow partaker. John wants to remind us, he's just like us. I'm experiencing the same realities that you are. I'm experiencing tribulation. I know what it means to suffer. In fact, John's going to say, he doesn't say it explicitly, but for those of us in the know, him being on the Isle of Patmos is part of his tribulation. He's in exile. He's been exiled from the Roman Roman Empire. So he's in Patmos, he's in exile, okay? In the tribulation, in the kingdom, he's part of the kingdom. Remember that inaugurated eschatology we talked about, that it's already and not yet? John's saying, I'm already part of this kingdom. I'm a partaker in it. It's not here fully, but I'm a part of this kingdom, just like you are. And the perseverance, Perseverance, that word is going to be so key, so central to what Revelation is about because that's what he's trying to encourage people to do with this book. Persevere. Don't give in to the world. Don't compromise with the world. Don't become like them, but live out your Christian identity. Live out who you are. You've got to persevere. John says, I'm a part of all of those, as are each of you. So he was on the island of Patmos in exile. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I tend to usually look at those two as kind of an Old Testament reality, New Testament reality. When he says the word of God, he's speaking about kind of the fulfillment of the scriptures, right? And for John, what were his scriptures? Well, the Old Testament. The New Testament believers, their scriptures were the Old Testament, or to us, the Old Testament. So when he says, I was there because of the word of God, I think in part he's saying, because I'm watching the fulfillment of the scriptures happen in the church age. Jesus is bringing them to pass. And for what? The testimony of Jesus. What's that mean? Well, 
he lived and walked and saw Christ. The testimony of Jesus is actually the authoritative teaching of Christ that also he saw, he witnessed, he was a part of. And of course, part of that testimony is John's own faith. He has faith in this Messiah. He has faith in Christ. And that testimony, giving that testimony, brought him into exile. Right? So because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was on Patmos. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. On a Sunday, he's, he's praying. He's interacting with God. He's in the spirit. He's in God's presence. That's the point. And I heard beha- behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So we come to our first question. Whose voice is this? Whose voice is this? Actually, in my Bible, my NASB, uh, I don't know about your guys' Bible or even on your phones or whatever, uh, the words here are written in red, the right, right in a book. I, I think already we've gotten to our first uh, mistake. This, this is not the voice of Jesus. I don't know why Bibles are putting them in red because I'm almost positive that this is not the voice of Christ. One is because you look at Revelation 4 and it comes back to talk about this voice. It actually, you're going to see in a few verses that it talks about what this son of man's voice is like. His voice is like the roar of many waters. This voice was like a loud trumpet. You go to Revelation 4, remember John says this, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet, spoke to me. This is not Jesus' voice. In fact, if you go back to verse 1 of Revelation 1, what does he say? How is the vision communicated? He says, this is a vision that was communicated from God to me by an angel. He says that explicitly. I think that first voice saying right is the voice of an angel. Interestingly, here's another example, right? You look here. There's a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And I know why people get confused. I'll show you in a second when we get to the next section. But here, we're just figuring this out. What that's referencing most likely is Exodus 19. And interestingly, we've already seen Exodus 19 in the first eight verses. Exodus 19 is where that kingdom of priests language came from. Remember that? You're you're a a royal priesthood to me, right? That's what he is saying in Exodus 19, that Israel was supposed to be. And now that language, that same language is applied to the church. The church is to be a royal priesthood, right? Israel was supposed to be it, and now the church is supposed to be it. He said, I've made you a kingdom and priest before before God, my father, right? That whole part of the uh, the first eight verses. Well, here we're back to Exodus 19 on this trumpet voice. Now, Exodus 19, of course, comes right before what? Well, Exodus 20. What's significant about Exodus 20? Anyone know? Exodus 20. Very significant rules for life come in Exodus 20. It's the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are Exodus 20. So this is right before the Ten Commandments are given, meaning the people are standing before Sinai. They're standing before the mountain. And here's what it says. Oh, so give you some context here. Before God speaks to them, he wants them to be consecrated. He wants them to be purified. So they purify themselves and he says, on the third day, I'm gonna speak to you. So that's where we're at. So it came about 
on the third day when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Okay. This passage is going to come up uh, again and again because these are called theophanies. They're appearances of God, manifestations of him. So this thunder and lightning and peals of sound, all that stuff, that's important to Revelation. So you'll see this passage again and again. But for here, right now, we're talking about the trumpet voice. Notice even here in Exodus 19, is the trumpet God's voice? No. No, God answers with thunder. The trumpet is a sound they're hearing. They're hearing some kind of sound. It doesn't explain what it is necessarily, but they hear this loud trumpet-like sound. Okay, back to Revelation 1. So if this voice is the voice of an angel speaking to him, it, it gives him a commission. It says, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, these seven churches that are named. And of course, in chapters two and three, we're gonna see these seven letters to the seven churches. But here at the beginning, he's being told, write what you see in a book. Now, what is John doing with this? Well, again, this is kind of a small phrase, write what you see in a book. It, it's it's. You know, it's going to be hard to find an exact perfect wording parallel, like he's quoting something. But actually, this idea shows up all the time. And what John's doing is claiming prophetic authority. He's saying, I'm a prophet. What I'm being commissioned to do is a prophet's work. This is what happens in Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah is told to write what he sees in a book. This happens in Habakkuk 2. Record the visions on a scroll. It happens in Ezekiel 1, 1, 2, and 3, really, 1, 2, and 3, this beginning section of Ezekiel. That one I'm not going to show you, though, because I'm going to save it for when we get to Revelation 10, because the Ezekiel passage in Revelation 10 becomes very significant. But here, we can just talk about the idea, right? This is, this is a prophetic act, is what John is saying. Just like the prophets of old, that's what's happening to me. I'm being commissioned for this work. This has some authority behind it. Okay, verse 12. Then I, this is John speaking, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest, with a golden sash. Okay. The confusing part at the beginning. This is why I think people get confused. I think people think that first wording part is Jesus speaking because he hears a loud trumpet sound, sounds like a voice. He turns to look at the voice, but he doesn't see it. He has a vision. And so inevitably people think, oh, that's the voice that was calling. Well, it actually specifically describes Jesus's voice in a different way because Jesus does speak to him. It doesn't describe it as a trumpet, though. It describes it as the sound of many waters. You'll see in the next, next couple sections. Uh, but here, 
He's just turning because he hears this voice and it's loud and it's trumpet-like and he turns. And when he turns, he doesn't see the essence of the voice. He sees a vision. And what he sees is seven golden lampstands. So where is this imagery coming from? Where's a lampstand in the scriptures? Well, significantly what we talked about last week, uh, Zechariah 4, that's really significant. And Zechariah 4 is an apocalyptic section as well in the scriptures. So that's really significant here as well. And we'll come back to that passage many times probably as we look at the lampstands. But for tonight, we're going to go back to the original idea of the lampstand. Where's the lampstand come from? Anyone know? Where's the lampstand in scripture start? It starts in the tabernacle. There's a lampstand in the tabernacle. And so we talk about that lampstand in Exodus 25. Remember what's happening after, remember we're, we're really early, we, we, we just looked at 19 and 20, where you have this uh, 10 commandments and the voice of the Lord speaking, but do you know, remember what happens at the end, the last half of Exodus, after that? It's, you know, it's when everyone stops reading because it gets real boring. It's great, but no one likes to read it. That's usually the part where people are like, okay, I think I'm done reading the Bible. You know, they get through Genesis, it's narrative, first half of Exodus, and then they're like, okay. They're just talking about what they're going to build stuff out of now, which Glenn might love. I don't know. You love that, Glenn? You got craftsmen. He's a craftsman. You might love that stuff. But the point is, there's all these measurements. There's all these ideas of, of perfect, you know, perfect, uh, just exact right qualifications for it. And we've got to have the right people to do it. And we've got to have them spirit anointed and all that's happening in the last half of Exodus. And so in the last half of Exodus, Exodus 25, it talks about this lampstand and what it's going to be made out of and how it's going to, how it should be fashioned, all of that. So here, I just took a couple verses. I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but here are these few verses. Then you shall make, this is the Lord speaking, by the way, or Moses really relaying what God had spoken to him. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides. Three branches of the lampstand from one side. Three branches of the lampstand from the other side. Now think about this before we get to the last verse. You've made a lampstand in three on each side. How many does that make? It actually makes seven because there's the lampstand that you've made and then six branches. There's that number again. And then verse 37 confirms it. You skip ahead a little bit. Verse 37, then you shall make its lamps seven in number and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it. Now this lampstand is located where? It's in the tabernacle. It's in the holy place. So it's not the holy of holies, this exact place where Lord's spirit is said to actually manifest itself, but it's in the holy place. This is not just a spot anyone can go into. This is in the tabernacle, okay? And the lamp is there, and these lamps represent kind of this this presence of God. And we've already seen that where we saw, we jumped ahead, but we saw the seven spirits of the Lord are the seven fires before the throne, most people think that's a reference to these lampstands that are in the earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle. They're a reference to what's actually going on in, in a heavenly version, right? This true version or the, the, the uh, true is not fair really, but in, in a heavenly version of the temple, God's throne. 
Okay? So Exodus 25 talks about this lampstand. Interestingly, what did John see? He saw seven lampstands. The tabernacle here, it only says one. But we actually have precedent for seeing more lampstands because in 1 Kings, Solomon, when he makes the temple, he actually says he puts 10 lampstands in there. 10 lamp, there's five on one side and five on the other, and they each have seven spouts, right? And, and John, what's he see? He sees seven lampstands. Seven lampstands with seven lamps each. We're stacking sevens because it's the best number. It's the number of completeness. This highly symbolic language. And we know this one is a, is a symbol. We know for a fact this is symbolic because Jesus is going to interpret it for us. That's the best. The best interpretation you can get is when scripture interprets itself for you and it says it openly and explicitly. They're going to tell us at the end of this passage what the lampstands are. Okay, so there's Exodus 25. Back to this. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, what did I just tell you about where we are if we're seeing a lampstand and it's coming from Exodus 25? We're in the tabernacle or we're in the temple, in the holy place. Okay, who goes into the holy place? Only priests. And in the holy of holies, only the high priest and only once a year, one time a year for the day of atonement, okay? So in the middle of the lampstands, these seven lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Okay, now this is a combination, a combination of two different verses or two different passages it's alluding to. Where's the son of man come? I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to teach you some of these passages because they're so significant to the book of Revelation that they come up over and over and over. And this is good theological training for you. Where's the son of man passage? Where's that found? Anyone know? I'll give you a hint. It's Daniel. Anyone know what chapter in Daniel? It's really important. Jesus quotes it. Remember? When he's about to die, he quotes it. You will see the Son of Man coming in power on the clouds. It's Daniel 7. Okay, Daniel 7. This is Daniel 7, 13. This is Daniel having his vision in Daniel 7. So we're getting into the apocalyptic part of Daniel. He says this, I kept looking in the night visions. Daniel's having a vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Okay, I'm gonna stop here before I go on with this passage to explain. Remember what's going on in this vision. He's had this vision of these different beasts <laughs> coming up out of the water, and he's also had this vision of this statue, and it's made of different elements, right? And of course, in Daniel, we know, oh, these are su successive kingdoms. These are different empires through history, okay? But when we get here at Daniel 7, all of those have happened. All the beasts have transpired, and we're now at the end of that, that uh, continuum. We've seen all the beasts, and now we're here. And the one like a son of man is coming for what? An everlasting kingdom, one that will never be defeated, the beast had their kingdom, and every one of them was crushed. But the Son of Man is coming to inherit a kingdom now. What's it mean to be a son of man? By the way, what's it implying? 
He's a human. We just saw all these beasts. They're animalistic. They're beasts. This is a man. What's it mean to be a son of a man? You're a man. (laughs) You're human. So the human one, what's the human do? Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days. Who's the ancient of days? It is the Father, yes. It is God. It is God. Now, when we, from a New Testament perspective, what we're thinking from the New Testament perspective is it's the Father. But Old Testament, when Daniel's writing this, they don't have that delineation. The Son of Man is this Messiah that they talk about all the time in the Old Testament, this, this coming Messiah. So, he goes up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to this Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So when it uses son of man, and you see that language in the New Testament, it's always pointing back to Daniel 7. Which is implying what? What does the son of man do? What's the point of this passage? The son of man is what? What's his title? What is the title of the son of man? What what does he receive? He's a king. He gets a kingdom. He gets dominion. He gets authority. Son of man is a kingly title. So when we see this being implied, I see one like a a son of man standing among the lampstands. It's implying his kingship. He's the one who's received the kingdom. Back to it though. What's he clothed in? He's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, a poderes in the, the Greek, which is interesting because that word again shows up in Exodus 25, where we've just been looking for these lampstands. The first time it shows up, I'm going to show you Exodus 28, where it's talked about in more depth. But that word first shows up there in Exodus 25 when they're talking about how everyone needs to give contributions from, from the overflowing generosity of their heart to the Lord. Why? Well, they need all the materials to make these beautiful things. And what are these beautiful things that they're going to make? Well, in Exodus 25, it says we're going to make, you know, all the instruments of the tabernacle, and we're going to make an ephod and a breastplate, and an ephod is a, a robe. In fact, it's the priestly robe. Okay? How, how long do you think the priestly robe is? How far do you think it goes? It reaches to the feet, which is why it's translated a poderes, reaching to the feet. Let's go to Exodus 28. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece and an ephod, which in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's a poderes a robe reaching to the feet. That's an ephod. What are they talking about in Exodus 28? They're going to make these garments, a breastplate, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a tunic, a turban, and a sash, 
and they shall make holy garments for who? Aaron and his sons, so that they may be priests before me. Now, son of man, he's what? He's a king. How is he dressed? Like a priest. Now, do you think we can confirm that these two ideas are in John's mind, or at least that he's been thinking about them? What did he call the church in the first eight verses of the book? He says, you have been made to be a kingdom and priests before God. Now, if we're made to be kings and priests, who are we imitating? The son of man, who's a king and a priest. What confirms he's a priest? He's standing among the lampstands, which are where? In the tabernacle, in the temple. He must be a priest. Jesus is king. Jesus is priest. What's interesting about those two roles? They're both human. Those are human roles. These are not roles that were somehow like thrust upon God when he created all things. These are mediatorial roles. They're they're human roles. The king If we look at Israel, for example, what's the king supposed to do? He's supposed to represent God or represent the people to God. And he's supposed to represent God to the people as their leader. What's a priest supposed to do? Mediate the people's sin. Stand between God's justice and human sinfulness to, as a mediator, take care of human sinfulness by sacrificing. These are human roles. Christ, the man, has taken on two human roles. He is king and he is priest. He's also a prophet. He's also a sage. He's a lot of things. But this passage is focused on two. He's a king and he's a priest. The two highest, most important human roles relating men to God. Okay? Jesus the king, Jesus the priest. And, you know, if you think about it, the whole point of the book is that this was a revelation from God to Jesus. It says that in the beginning verses. Remember that? This came a vision from God to Christ. So in that sense, he's a prophet too, isn't he? This is a vision that Jesus received and then was communicated to John by an angel. Okay, let's go on. So Jesus, the son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. He's king and priest. But then listen to this, Jesus, the human, he's a king and a priest. But what's he look like? We know what he does. We know his office. It's human, They're human offices. But he looks like this. His head and his hair were white 
like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. Okay, that sounds very mystical. That sounds less human and more glorious, more magnificent, but we know he has human offices. And, and it's nice, it's a nice vision when you just think about, oh, Jesus is powerful or something like that, kind of ambiguously. He's powerful. He's, he's kind of, he must look angelic or something. Every one of these parts of this whole vision is an Old Testament reference. Now again, remember I told you how significant Daniel is for the book of Revelation. There's a lot of other places too, but specifically Daniel 7, I told you, is very significant. We're going to go back to Daniel 7. Who has head and hair white like white wool like snow? Daniel 7, verse 9, were earlier than what we read about the Son of Man. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Now, who has white hair like pure wool, like snow? the ancient of days. Okay, let's go to the next one. Ezekiel 43. We're going to skip feet like burnished bronze. I'll, I'll just mention it. There's so many references I actually can't go through them without like just, I don't know, making guys have to go back and forth so many times. I have to limit them. But we'll just look at burnished bronze. The burnished, burnished, burnished bronze and glow in a furnace. Remember, Daniel's pretty significant. So my first thought and many people's first thought is to go to Daniel 3. The furnace. What's Daniel 3? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're thrown into the furnace. Right? That's that furnace language. And in fact, what's it say? What's Nebuchadnezzar say when he's thrown them in? That didn't we throw three men in there? Who's this fourth man? He looks like a son of the gods. That furnace language, that shows up more consistently in Daniel 3 than anywhere else in the scriptures. That's where that language is coming from. Feet like burnished. Jesus, he's pure. He's like glowing in a, there's no impurities. Burnished bronze, shining, beautiful. The light hits every part of him and reflects. That's most likely that reference. Okay, his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, we've talked about this in relation to who's speaking, but where's this come from? This comes from Ezekiel 43. 
Ezekiel 43, near the end of Ezekiel. Ezekiel has 48 chapters, I believe. We're getting to the end. What's the main end point? Actually, this is significant for Revelation 2. Those last chapters 40 to to 48 of Ezekiel. What's happening in those last chapters? (coughs) Excuse me. He's measuring a temple. The new temple. That's the end of Ezekiel. But here, at the start of uh, Ezekiel 43, it says this. Then he led me up to the gate. The gate facing toward the east, he's going to the temple gate. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. Okay, in his right hand, he held seven stars. I won't go into this. There's many places that different commentators go to. But we're going to see that stars often have this, where are the stars located? They're in heaven, right? They're in the heavens. We use that language still somewhat. They're in the skies. They're above. Often stars get associated with angels, with angelic beings. And we're going to see, because again, this is one of those things that's interpreted for us in this passage, that that's clearly what this refers to. In his right hand, he holds seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Where does that come from? Well, most likely Isaiah 49. If you know Isaiah, Isaiah has these servant songs that show up in the the second part of the book of Isaiah. In 40 40 to 55, those chapters. And this is one of them. This is the start of one of the servant songs. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, right? He has made my mouth like a a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Those two streams have always been crossed in the servant songs, which is the stream of, is this talking about an individual? Is this talking about Messiah? Or is this talking about the corporate nation? Those two things have always kind of, those streams in Jewish thought have always been there. Of course, now, post-Jesus, they've backed away from messianic things and have tried to say, well, this is actually about corporate Israel that they've more focused on that. But of course, in the New Testament, the idea is that Jesus actually fulfills what Israel was supposed to do, right? What Israel failed to do, Jesus, as the true Israelite, he fulfills it. And again, so even in Isaiah 49, you can see these two streams are coming together in one, in Jesus, right? We see Jesus fulfilling this as the corporate representative of Israel and as an individual himself, this Messiah that's coming. But there you go. He's made my mouth like a a sharp sword. And then the second part, shining like the sun in its strength. That comes from Judges 5. Judges 5, 31. Now this is, in Judges 5, uh, this is the song of Deborah. You've had a great victory. They've had this, you know, this uh, great military victory and they've defeated their enemies. And she sings this song. And at the, and it's, it's an interesting song Um, because it's a war song. It's about them crushing their foes. 
And then at the very end of it, it says this. And we like the shining and like the sun. We like that part. But the first part of the verse is this. Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might or the shining of the sun in its strength, which is what it has in Revelation. What is that referring to about Jesus as it relates to judges? This one like a son of man, this king, this priest, he's got all the attributes of God. His hair is white, like wool, like snow, just like the ancient of days. His voice is like the sound of many waters, just like God in Ezekiel 43. He holds the angels in his hand. He has sovereignty over them. And he's the servant who's come. And Judges 5, what's that adding to the picture? He's a warrior. He's a warrior. Now, You better buckle up if you don't like the image of Jesus as a warrior because it's central to the book of Revelation. Now, we live in an age, and this is true. I don't deny this at all. There are different times in history, in God's plan, where people have had different uh, MOs, different different operating orders (laughs) from God. We live... And in the age of salvation, we, we do. We live as the church, as people who are meant to offer salvation while the day is open. While the day is here that people can receive it, we are meant to offer it to them in love and forgiveness and hope and peace and joy <clears throat> and all of the goodness of God. Sometimes, though, I think we are so inundated with that we forget that God is the judge of all the earth. We forget that God stands like a warrior. Now, when you read the Old Testament, it's much clearer that he's a warrior, much clearer, which is a lot of times why people don't like the Old Testament. You can't get around that facet of who God is. It's central to who he is because he's the judge of all the earth and he will judge evil for what has been done. And it's only by accepting Christ that we escape the judgment that we rightly deserve. That's the thing we sometimes forget. We rightly deserve that judgment. It's only because of God's grace that we're not receiving it because we accepted Jesus. But we deserve the judgment. We may not receive it, but that's what we should get. God in his graciousness does not give it to us. But we've got to keep the fact that even though we live in this age and we are meant to do that, and I'm, I encourage us all, show love, offer salvation. That's our, that's what God has, that's our marching orders. That's what he's told us to do. But there will come a day when that day ends and God the warrior will be made clear. And he will tolerate and brook no dissension and the rebels will be crushed. All things will be brought under his authority. All things will be brought to heal before him. And so when you hear these lines say in Revelation, like every knee will bow, every tongue confess to us because we're Christian, that sounds very nice. What a beautiful picture. 
Everyone's bowing before our Lord, just like we want to do. And our lips are confessing that he is Lord because we love him. We're saying a confession out of love. The other side of that image is that there are a conquered people being forced to bow down to acknowledge he is Lord and being forced to confess his lordship despite hating him. We forget that side of the picture. Why? Because we love him. (laughs) We are willingly his servants, but he's going to come like a warrior and everyone will submit to his lordship, whether they want to or not. Now, I know that's heavy, (laughs) but it's an important picture of who God is because he is God and we need to be struck by the majesty of that. This image of Jesus, this vision we just had of him is Jesus the man, high priest, king, offers salvation, loves the churches, walks among them. And yet, we can never forget that that same Jesus, that same man, is the one like the ancient of days, whose voice is like the roar of many waters, who has a sword that comes from his mouth to slay his enemies, whose face shines like the sun. And if you want to know if that's an intimidating vision or whether it should be, what's John's response? When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He collapsed before him like he passed out. But he, the son of man, he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. But behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now remember what I just told you about that vision how intimidating it is that he's the warrior, that he's the judge, that he he will brook no dissent, that all peoples will bow before him, whether in submission or through being conquered. What's his message to his servant, John? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Nothing is outside my purview. I'm the living one. I died, and now I live forevermore. Even death itself cannot hold me. When he says, I hold the keys to death and Hades, that's not just saying I conquered death. That means I have the authority to to determine who is bound by death and who is not. He can open up that door anytime he wants and take someone out of death because he holds the keys. Now, when we look at the vision, mom, this is for you. When we look at the vision, it's scary, it's intimidating. But the vision is not one 
that believers are meant to be frightened by. We're meant to hear what John heard. See, because what John is receiving and what we are receiving through John is a peek behind the veil, a glimpse into the supernatural. And when everything is hard, and when everything feels like I just, I've lost another sister, and I'm miserable, and I just miss them, and what hope do we have in this world? Look how bad things are. Look at the wars all over the world. Look at the people suffering. Look at all that I'm going through. Look at the persecution I'm under. Look at everything that's happening to me. You're reminded by the vision that that Jesus he is still reigning as king and he is still mediating for you as priest and that that same Jesus that John saw holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands and that all the earthly things, oh, my job's hard or school's not going well or whatever life could throw at you when it's overwhelming when you cannot bear it any longer, you realize that behind these earthly things, in heaven, Jesus looks like that. And for us, here together now, everything I just told you is a very individual element about you personally. But what's so significant about this passage is that he's walking among the lampstands. Let's look at the last part. I'm gonna come back to verse 19. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All of this was started by saying, here, John said, I turned and saw seven golden lampstands and I saw one in the middle of them who was like a son of man, clothed in the priestly garments. And then he says, the lampstands at the very end, our last verse, the, the angels of the churches are the stars that he holds and the lampstands are the churches. What's that supposed to be about? Jesus in the heavenlies. There are these representatives, these angels, these messengers who stand before God, who are part of this heavenly temple, this heavenly tabernacle, who are representing the churches before him. And even all the while, while that's going on in heaven, and the lampstands are just, you know, here. <laughs> they're their churches. They're, they're wellspring right now. The same Jesus who's holding the stars in his hands is walking amongst the churches. He's there. And so what everything I just said that applies to the individual applies to the community as well. When the community is just off its rocker, when, there's, when, you're, when, you're, when you're just waylaid, you're tossed about because you've got the, the latest scandal 
in your church, or you've got all the pastors are leaving, or all the people are leaving, and you're a dying church, or, or whatever's going on that is just rocking the church community. Jesus is still walking among the lampstands, doing what he will, doing what a priest does, lighting them when they go out, trimming the wicks to take care of them, putting new candles where they need new candles. The work of a priest. Jesus is doing that in the church. In all churches that serve him. He's among them. And the reason I wanted to, the, I almost had Tyler and Aaron teach this passage while I was gone and I, I, we changed things around and of course we went to Disneyland which was awesome but I really wanted to preach this passage. And here's the reason. The reason is because all the letters make sense only in light of the fact that you can recognize that Jesus is speaking to the churches. When it says he walks among the lampstands, it means he's caring for them. And all of a sudden, these seven letters that seem kind of weird and esoteric to us, they don't make a lot of sense. You realize what's actually going on. Jesus is doing pastoral care for them. He's doing priestly work for them. He's writing, he's speaking messages to them about where they're at and what needs to change and what needs to be rebuked and what is going well. And he still does that today. The reason I love this first section of Revelation is predicated on this vision because Jesus still does this. This is not just to those seven churches in the days of Revelation. In fact, there's a hint there, isn't there? How many churches are there being written to? Seven. Why is it seven? It's the completeness of the church. My interpretation of these first three chapters is when Jesus speaks to these churches. Now, everyone kind of has this idea. This is to the church universal. And I think we all agree with that to some level, of course, because we believe the scripture was written for all God's people of all time. But I believe it even shows Jesus' methodology, which is that he, he has a method of speaking to the churches. And guess what? He speaks to them individually. He doesn't give the same message to Thyatira that he gives to Sardis. He speaks to them because he knows each one of them. And what he has to say is tailor-made to them. And in the same way, he does that for our churches today. But I think in a unique way, these seven messages, the next seven messages I'm going to give over these next seven weeks, are messages that every church might need to hear in its lifetime. And that's why they're immortalized in the words of Scripture. Because each one has a unique message, a unique point that was certainly for that church. The message to Ephesus is certainly the message that Ephesus needed in that day and age. But beyond that, it's a message that any church in its lifetime might need to hear. So it's immortalized in scripture. But also, we know that Jesus is still speaking today. In the same way he had individual messages for each one of these churches in their day, he still has an individual message for each body, each local body of the church. 
That means it should be an encouragement. That means he has a message for Wellspring. That he has a message for each one of these churches that is serving him around this greater, this shoreline area, the Seattle area, going north, Linwood, all, Everett, all these churches in this, all of Washington, all of the world, all of the country. He's speaking to each church, correcting where he needs to correct, encouraging where he needs to encourage. And I'm excited to go through these messages in the next seven weeks because each one brings something unique to the table. And maybe it's a message you've needed to hear or the bo- a body you've been a part of is needed to hear at some point. You rove between them at different stages in the life of the church. I think that's the point. What Jesus has to speak to the churches is always timely. It always does its work. It always, like, like it says, his word goes out and never returns void, right? Like the scriptures say. His word accomplishes what he sets its purpose to be. It will not come back empty. So Jesus is still walking. That's the, that's the comfort in this passage. These things seem mystical and, and far away and don't make a lot of sense because we don't understand the references, but what it's trying to tell the church is that no matter what's going on, and we're going to see this in the messages no matter what's going on in the life of the church, remember the one who walks among the lampstands because he's there and he speaks. and He has a message for each body and for each person. We've got to remember that. That's why I called this week the one among, who walks among the churches because he's still doing it even now. He's been doing it all the way since the creation of the church, since Pentecost, since Acts 2. He's walked among the churches. That vision is going to kind of be the, the heading under each one of these next uh, letters to the churches. You know what's interesting? I don't know if people notice this or not. I just don't know how much people pay attention. Every single letter for the next, like I said, the next seven weeks, each one to the seven churches, Every letter starts with talking about an aspect of Jesus. He's the one who holds the key of David, or he's the one who every one of them, every starting of the letter is drawn from this vision. One of them calls him the he who walks among the lampstands. One calls him the one who has feet like burnished bronze. One calls him uh, the one who holds the key of David, which is obviously like the one who holds the key of death in Hades. All these passages are being drawn directly from this vision. It's connecting all the letters to the one John saw to just further emphasize, hey, this Jesus who's speaking, he's the one who's speaking to the churches. Okay. I'm gonna go back to verse 19 now. I guess I need to point it this way. Um, Verse 19. Okay. So, 
I'm going to back it up. We just had this vision happen. We saw it. He, he tells John who he is. He comforts him, says, do not be afraid. And then Jesus, not the first voice. The first voice was an angel, told him to write these things down. Now Jesus commissions John. After John sees who he is and sees the power of the image of, of Christ, then Christ commissions him, saying this, therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Now, verse 19. I kind of, like I said, I did this out of order a little bit, but we're gonna, we just have to spend some time here at verse 19 (laughs) because everyone without fail agrees that Chapter one, verse 19 is the key to interpreting the book. Everyone agrees with that. And no one can agree on how to interpret it. (laughs) This verse. Okay. Everyone who comes to it reads it different. That's part of the reason we have so many interpretations of the book. But everyone agrees. Hey, you want to understand Revelation? Look at 119. We've got to figure it out. So, when futurists read it, here's how they read it. Futurists who think that the vast majority of the book is future time, right? It's the end time. It's talking about the future. They read this and they say, therefore, write the things which you have seen. That's the vision of chapter one, right? That vision we just went through, the son of man vision. The things which are, that's chapters two and three, the letters to the churches, the things which are present, chapters two and three, and the things which will take place after these things. Future, chapters four to 22. So when a future sees the key, what's the key of the book of Revelation? Verse 19, it's talking about what you've already seen to John, that's chapter one. What is chapters two and three, the letters to the churches, and what's gonna take place in the future? What's after these things? chapters 4 to 22, and they're all future visions. They say, hey, there's the key. That's how you interpret the book, just like 19 says. Okay, all millennialists, and I, I don't know exactly what, I, I'm not t- totally sure what a post-millennial would think, but, uh, but for all millennialists at least, which we talked about this after these things, remember that language is coming from Daniel. So when they hear after these things or after this, that language, they see that not as applying to the future, but as applying to the eschatological age, meaning to the whole time since Christ first came on the scene. The after these things is code word for the church age, right? It's code word for what's happening and what has happened since Christ first appeared on the scene. So when they hear after these things, they're not saying, well, yeah, okay. Yeah, they're willing to admit part of that includes the future, of course. But it also includes everything that Christ has done, including those first moments when he was here, his ministry and what that included, what his death and resurrection meant. The book of Revelation, it has a lot about his death and resurrection because that's part of this after these things. The changing of the age, from the old age to the new age, the beginning of new creation. When did new creation start? 
when Christ got on the scene, when he was resurrected. He's the first of the, he's the firstborn from the dead, new creation. That's the after these things. So yeah, they're going to say, yeah, it talks about the future, but it talks about all of the church age. Now and before and all these seminal moments that, that Jesus inaugurated, that he started in the first century, extending all the way to the end of time. Okay. The other major interpretation, there's, there is many more. <laughs> I'm going to give you one more, uh, which is this. Therefore, write the things which you have seen. Uh, in this interpretation, J- Jesus is preempting John to write about the things which he has seen, and that means everything which he is going to see, period, in the whole book. So d- rather than looking at these as like separate visions, think of it as one visionary experience where, yeah, he has a lot of different pictures come up, but it's all one experience, right? And so Jesus at the beginning, at the outset, he's saying what you will see, what you have seen, write it all down. Write down the words of this vision. And the words of this vision are related to two things. The things which are and the things which will take place. So it's actually a message about both the present and the future in some sense. It's a message that talks about the things which are and the things that will take place. And, and, and really, in another way, the things which are in an earthly sense and the things which are beyond time, a heavenly sense, the, the things that go beyond, right? That's another way to interpret it the things which are and the things that will take place. So this is, a, 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 this is a, a prophecy. This is visions of both the present and the future. And he's telling John, write it all down. Everything you're gonna see, everything that's gonna happen, write the whole vision, write it. Because this is gonna tell us about the things which are and the things which will take place, okay? It's three major interpretations, you're going to have to decide for yourself. I'm not going to make an interpretation for you. I tend to think that there is both future and present elements. I will say that. Because I think you get to some of these visions and they make sense only in light of looking at the death and resurrection of Christ and how significant an event that was. The visions of chapter four and five in the heavenly throne room and the first part of Jesus opening the scroll, opening the seals and all of that. That looks like death and resurrection language. I mean, it's, it's key to the vision. When they see Jesus, what do they see him? They see him like a slain lamb. <laughs> That's the point. He is immortalized as the slain lamb. The sacrifice, right? And so I tend to think that there's kind of bits of both, that there's definitely, I definitely think this is a prophecy of the future of what's going to happen at the end times. But like I've told you before, I think this is a history repeats itself thing. I think we, we all can place ourselves in situations we recognize in the book of Revelation because these events have just a cyclical nature. There will be a climactic final time that it happens. But it's, it's easy to recognize in the life of an empire when you've lived under persecution, right? <clears throat> Suffering makes sense to people because that's a universal human reality. We all suffer be fair, some in much, much, much worse ways than most of us here have experienced. But we all suffer. That's part of being human post-fall. It's inevitable. Okay. That's kind of my interpretation. So there's verse 19. 
But like I said, it's key. It's key to understanding the book. And like I said earlier, then Jesus confirms, here's the interpretation. The stars are the angels of the churches and the lampstands are the churches. Jesus is walking among the churches and he's holding the angels who are the representative of the churches in heaven. That's also interesting. It says the angels of the churches. Now, some people take that to mean different things. Some people, well, if you remember, angel actually has a meaning. We just translate it. Angelos actually is a word in, in, in Greek, right? We just take the word and Romanize it into English. We just, you know, anglicize it, I guess, really, and just make it angels. But it actually has a meaning. It means messenger. So it's used of human messengers too. So some people look at this and say, oh, this is about like some human messenger who's carrying the message to the church, an angel. That's a fair interpretation from what the word means, but unlikely considering the book talks about angels as heavenly beings consistently throughout the whole book. I mean, he's constantly seeing angels that are like standing on the earth and the sea. Like that's not a human, <laughs> clearly. That's, he's, he's viewing a supernatural being. So I think that's probably consistent with this. These are heavenly or supernatural beings. And what they are doing is representing the church. They're, they're a representative for the church in heaven. That's why he calls them the angels of the churches. They actually are standing as representatives. And not only does he hold the representative in his hand, but he walks among the churches. It's interesting. Because, of course, when he writes the letters, he's going to say, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. He actually writes to the, the messenger. And, of course, in some sense, that makes sense. He writes to the messenger. Why? So the messenger can give the message <laughs> to the church. But that, that dichotomy is going to show up throughout the book, which is not, every earthly thing is not just an earthly thing. There's a heavenly reality behind it. And even here, this early in chapter one, it's making that point. Jesus, he's got his feet in both realms. He's got the stars in his hands and he's walking among the lampstands. He's doing the work of the priest here on earth, among the churches, and he's also doing the work of the priest in the heavenly temple, in the throne room, right? John talks about that in 1 John. He's still interceding for us, right? That's the work Christ is doing, even now. Christ is still at work. It's not like Christ, okay, I died and resurrected, my work's done. He's still working, interceding for his, his saints. So, that dichotomy of the heavenly and earthly realities and getting to see behind the veil, that is a significant part of what makes a work apocalyptic, what makes it an apocalyptic genre. And the apocalypse, the revelation, it's gonna do that all the time. Throughout the book, we're gonna come back again and again and again. Oh, we keep getting glimpses about what's going on in heaven. We keep getting to see behind the curtain and see what really is going on. Even though it looks like horrible just pain and suffering on earth. What's, what's behind here? What's God doing? Because he's always above it. He always has his guiding hand upon it. And revelation is meant to spark that in us. 
It's meant to remind us. Nothing's outside of God's purview. He's not forgotten. It's not just accidental. It's not just, just somehow this one slipped by him. It doesn't mean we get an individual answer to every little piece of suffering. But the plan, the plan's going forward. He's got it. And John is going to remind us of that over and over by showing us the earthly side and the heavenly side. They're both real. They're both true. They're both happening. But we, as citizens of heaven, as God's people, we're meant to not be fooled or deceived by the appearances of the earthly. Because we're meant to be the only people who get to see behind the veil and recognize God's there. He's still working because we're the people that that vision has been committed to. Just like John saw and he's showing us. We get to see the reality behind reality. The one who walks among the lampstands and holds the stars. We keep our vision on him. And that's what helps us walk through this earth and do what John said, persevere. Because if you think this is all you've got, you're gonna wanna compromise. This is all I got. I don't want my life to be suffering. I don't want my life to look like Jesus' life, which was suffering and then death. But if you can see beyond, if you can have an eternal perspective, which John's trying to give us, then you can be motivated to persevere. So that's my encouragement for you tonight. That's my comfort that I offer you tonight. Don't forget that he walks among the lampstands. He's here, even now. We can't see it in the earthly, but we know in the heavenly, the king, the high priest, he's here. Aaron, I, I know I didn't prep you for this. I, I was hoping you could just come up and play Holy one more time. I mean, that song is, uh, everything I just said, uh, that song is about. I, thought, I just think it's so perfect. I just hope, hope, wish we could pr- play it one more time, if that's okay. Yeah. Awesome. And then Tyler's gonna come up and pray and close us. But I just wanna sing this song. And you know what? It's interesting in Revelation too. Revelation always keeps coming back to these moments of worship these moments of singing and praise and calling out glory to God's name. And you know why that is, Aaron? It's because when you think about the reality of who God is and you see a vision like that, it moves your heart to want to worship. That's what I'm feeling from that vision. That's why I I want Aaron to do this. So thank you, Aaron.